Well, please turn in your Bibles with me to the Gospel according to John, chapter 1. We're going to attempt to cover verses 1 through 5 together this morning. Uh, Throughout uh, the week of preparation, I was going back and forth between uh, covering verses 1 and 2, verses covering uh, verses 1 through 5, and Obviously, I've elected for the latter, so you're getting a you're getting a double whopper today instead of a whopper. That's terrible. I should never compare God's word to a whopper. You're you're getting a 16 ounce steak instead of an 8 ounce steak or whatever food you prefer. Um, you remember last week uh, when we got started in our new series in the Gospel of John, we actually went to towards the end and looked at John's purpose statement. Uh, where John tells us that he, he wrote all of these things down so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing have life in his name. That's, that's what we're after. That's, that's our hope. That's my prayer as we go through the Gospel of John together, that every single one of us in this room, young and old alike, would know and believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and have everlasting life in his name. But who is this Jesus, right? Who, who is the Christ, and, and what's he like? Well, to answer those questions, we need to patiently work our way through the Gospel of John in the coming months. Actually, let's not kid ourselves, the coming years, okay? <laughs> As we get through the gospel of, of John together. But with that in mind, let's go ahead and, and read the first five verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. It's fascinating to compare uh, the ways that four different Gospels begin. Matthew gives you a genealogy going all the way back to Abraham. Mark begins by citing Isaiah the prophet. Luke, well, it takes him until, I think, chapter 3, but eventually he gets to his own genealogy. It goes all the way back to the first man, Adam. Now, John, though, put it this way, John outdoes them all. John, John goes beyond Isaiah, beyond Abraham, beyond Adam, beyond creation itself. He goes back beyond the beginning to all eternity before time when the word was with God and the word was God. I am personally convinced that this is the single greatest opening to any story that has ever been told. It's even greater than the beginning of the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings, because the story 
of Jesus predates Genesis. Here we discover a deeper story before the dawn of time. And it is crucial to appreciate the enormous significance of this eternal origin that John describes at the outset of his gospel about Jesus. To begin the story of Jesus with with words that, that not only echo but exceed the beginning of creation itself forces us, it compels us to reconsider everything that God's word has to say in the light of the word made flesh. In other words, John is saying, remember when he says, we have seen his glory? John is saying that what he's seen in Jesus changes everything. It reframes everything. It sheds a new light on everything. It deepens everything. It surpasses everything. And so it forces us to rethink everything from the very beginning to the very end of the Bible. Because as the eternal word of God, Jesus is everything that God has to say. As the eternal word of God, Jesus is everything God has to say. There's nothing more that God wants to express. There's nothing more that God wants to get across other than what he has already said in Jesus, the eternal word. Jesus is God's first and final word. And so with that in mind, I want us to consider this passage together this morning, looking at these three descriptions of Jesus, where he's presented as the logos, the life, and the light. And just in case, in case you're, you're wondering, I, I know many of us are, are practically oriented, and that's a good thing. If you're wondering at any point, okay, what are we, what are we after this morning? What are we about? What's, what's the application? Very, very simple this morning. The only thing we're seeking to do today is to get to know Jesus. To get to know Jesus. Maybe, maybe you think, oh, I, I know Jesus. I know Jesus. I think when we try to plumb the depths of what John is saying to us this morning, we'll discover there's always more of Jesus to get to know. Look at the opening words with me. In the beginning was the word. John, is, John of course, is echoing here. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And notice, notice that we learn something about God before we learn about God creating. In other words, there's something revealed in Genesis 1.1 about who God is. Even before we learn about God as creator. The very first thing that we learn about God in the Bible is that God is. In the beginning, God was. He's not a part of the created order. The theologians have called this God's aseity, his, his self-existence. You see, God isn't, God isn't dependent upon something outside of himself for his own 
existence. Nothing brought him into being. God always was. God always is. God always will be. Now, here's what we need to appreciate. John quotes Genesis 1-1 with, with all of that theological content in view, but with a twist. Now, if you're reading Genesis 1-1 in the Greek Septuagint, you would expect to read en arche en ha theos. Theos being the Greek word for God. But instead, John begins his gospel saying en arche en ha logos. Okay? He, so what's John doing? John, John's take us back to, this, to the same point before creation, before anything was made that was made, when only God was, and he introduces us to the Word. This is the Word, who we'll read about even later in this opening prologue, verse 14. The Word, this is the Word who took flesh, who is later identified as Jesus the Christ, the one who will go on to the wedding of Cana and, and transform water into wine, who will talk to Nicodemus at night, speaking with him about being born again, who will talk to the Samaritan woman at the well, telling her everything she ever did. This man, he was in the beginning. He was there before anything was made that was made. It's, in Greek, it's just, it's just five simple words. Just 15 letters, actually, in, in the Greek. But these opening words, as simple as they are, are absolutely determinative for how we read the rest of John's Gospel. This one who's called Jesus, who in the fullness of time took flesh, the one who lived and died and rose again in our flesh was there in the beginning. Before creation, the word was, John says. When only God was, the word was. And so the story of the word predates the birth of baby Jesus and even predates creation itself. So John begins what we might call the pre-existence of the word. Let's think about that, that name, logos, word. What does it mean to say that Jesus is the word of God? We're, we're familiar with that designation, but what, is it, what does it actually mean? Now, the Greek term logos, again, which translated word in our English translations, was a common term used... In, in Greek philosophy at the time, used by Stoic and Platonist philosophers, and frankly, you know, the commentaries on the historical background of this term are, uh, it'll, it'll leave your head spinning a bit, it's pretty tedious. But the most important background, and this is what I think we need to focus on, the most important background for understanding John's use of the term logos is the Bible itself particularly the Old Testament. Uh, <clears throat> in the Old Testament, God's word is his powerful 
self-expression and revelation. So, so powerful that God creates by his word. Psalm 33 verse 6 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their hosts. There you have God creating by his word and by his spirit, his ruah, the breath of his mouth. Right in light of the full revelation that God has given us, you have God the Father creating all things by his word and spirit. That's Psalm 33, verse 6. So through the word, God created everything. John John 1, verse 3 says, all things, speaking of the word, all things were made through him. And if that wasn't clear enough, and without him was not anything made, <coughs> excuse me, that was made. I, you try, to, try to appreciate the, the wonder of what John is saying here. Oh, back in uh, 2016, there's a journal article that uh, circulated, published in Science. It was, it was based on uh, deep field images from the Hubble Space Telescope. And it led them to suggest that there are at least two trillion galaxies in the observable universe. I, I don't even, can't, I don't have a category for thinking that. Two trillion galaxies. That was actually 10 times as many galaxies as previously thought. We just keep finding out that there's more, right? There's, there's more to the glory of God being revealed in the heavens. And each galaxy, okay, get that number in mind, two trillion. Each galaxy is estimated to have about 100 million stars. Okay, keep that in mind and go to another scientific research project. A few years ago, another group of scientists tried to determine, and this was, this was, this is, I'm completely serious here, not making this up. A group of scientists tried to determine whether there are more stars in the universe than there are grains of sand on planet Earth. They had this really complex way of trying to calculate how many grains of sand there are on Earth. But just try to, I mean, you can't even count the grains of sand in the palm of, of your hand. Stuff gets everywhere. You know, I, we went on vacation to the Outer Banks several years ago, and I still find sand in, in our van. I can't, I can't understand that number. But they, but they calculated it, and they concluded that there are more stars in the universe than there are grains of sand. Think about that in light of what John is saying. John is saying that the word made them all. He put each one in its place. I think it's safe to say, and don't, I'm not, I don't mean this as an insult in any way whatsoever. I'll say it to myself first. Your Jesus is too small. Your Jesus is too small. Sometimes people balk at the exclusivity of Christianity. You've heard this. How, how can Christians believe in the exclusivity of Christ? When you think about that question in light of what John is saying, you have to say, how could we not 
all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. You know, it's really, it's really cool to say things like, hey, you know, we, we, all have our own, we all have our own truth. However you get up the mountain is fine. However you get there is fine. And I find myself wanting to say, but we, we know who made the mountain. Right? We know who made the mountain. He is the way. He's the only way because he alone comes from God. And he himself is God. And so the Son, as the Logos, is God's powerful self-expression and revelation. I just want to continue to dwell on that together for a few minutes. Think about it this way. What do words do? I think one of the things we can say is words are the way that we disclose ourselves. Words are the way that we express who we are. Right? There's a revelation that comes out in every word that we speak. <coughs> okay? Imagine trying to get to know someone without using words. Imagine trying to get to know someone who just never talks, never, never opens their mouth, not a word. You might think not only they're kind of weird, <laughs> you probably think, I can't, I can't get to know this person. How can you really get to know someone who never communicates, who never discloses their mind with words? You, you, you can't. We disclose our identity with speech. And our words, whether we like it or not, reveal who we are. And in some sense, that's true of God. And I'm not saying, there's not a one-to-one correspondence here because while our words are a kind of self-expression and revelation John's helping us to understand that God's word is in fact a divine person we're talking here about son of God and the word reveals the one who eternally speaks that word the word is spoken by God coming forth from the one who speaks and so this word is not just you know, some interesting data, some interesting facts about God. This word comes from God to reveal God himself and to show what God is like. Now hang with me for a second. I know we're starting to tread in some deeper waters, but we need to think hard about what is being communicated here about God the Son. What, what does it mean to say that the Son of God is the Word of the Father. Among other things, it means that His origin, His eternal origin, is from the Father. He comes from the Father. John is is helping us to understand that the Son comes from the Father, begotten, not made. Right? The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. This is... John is helping us understand, with this concept of the Word, the eternal relation of the Son to the Father. As the Word comes from God, God the Father has always spoken God the Son, we could say. God the Father has always had the Son, who is the exact expression and and imprint of His nature. 
He's the perfect expression, and as we'll see later in the prologue, the perfect revelation of the Father because he shares in the same divine nature. Now that's a, <clears throat> that's a lot to <clears throat> try to wrap our minds around. We're going to come back to it later. Excuse me. <clears throat> but this word, word, is a really profound way to describe the Son's eternal origin from the Father, while also telling us that the Father makes himself known in creation and in salvation through his Son, through Christ. Okay, so you think, well, okay, what, what does this mean? Here's, here's one big takeaway. Right? So just one thing to take away from, from that. If you want to know God, if you want to know what God is really like, listen to Jesus. Listen to Jesus. Did any wonder why the Heavenly Father said when his incarnate son was transfigured on the mount, this is my beloved son, listen to him. He's the perfect revelation of the Father. Again, because he and the Father are one. But there's more to say about Jesus as the word. It's, it's not just to say that he's infinitely powerful or that he's God's way of making himself known. It's also to say that he is eternally personal. He's eternally personal. We are not talking about some impersonal concept of you know, logic or rationality or reason here. We're talking about the eternally personal and relational character of the Son. This is, this is stated briefly but beautifully in verses 1 and 2 where John says, The Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. <clears throat> Think carefully about those words. Notice that there's a distinction made. The Word was with God. In the beginning, right, before anything was made that was made, you have God and the Word. Distinction. But then, right alongside of that, you have, you have identification and <clears throat> unity. And the Word was God. <laughs> right? Distinction and unity. And then there's the language of relationship. And the Word was with God in the beginning. I think it's right to say that in, in John's gospel, to be with here is an expression of fellowship for John. It's the language of union and communion. It's a claim to relationship. And in the context of John's prologue, this is really a claim to the eternal relationship between the divine persons who are, who are described as being inseparably with one another while also being personally distinct. This, this means that the deepest reality, this is such an important truth for us to maintain as Christians living in our world today. This, this means that the deepest reality cannot be reduced to mindless matter in motion. Cannot be reduced to to this you know, impersonal force that brought about material reality. Instead, the deepest reality is traced to eternal fellowship within the Godhead. 
Right? The creative power behind the universe is not an impersonal force, but an eternally relational being. And that has profound implications <clears throat> for how we think about the world in which we live. <clears throat> in the unity and oneness of God, there is an eternal fellowship of divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit existing in, in all eternity and perfect fullness, joy, blessedness, and delight. This is the glory that, that Jesus says he enjoyed before the foundation of the world in John 17. Before the world began, the Son enjoyed a glory with the Father. So again, ask, ask, ask that big question. Ask the big questions in light of this. Why is there something rather than nothing? Why is there being instead of non-existence? Why do any of us exist at all? Why did God create? Now, if you know the Westminster Shorter Catechism, your instinct is probably to go <clears throat> to question and answer one and say, well, we, we exist for God's glory. And that's, that's certainly true. But right alongside of that, there's another thing we ought to affirm. Why does anything exist at all? Why is there being rather than nothingness? I think the deepest answer is because the Father loves the Son. Because the Father loves the Son. All things were created through him. And as Paul says, all things were created for him. Colossians 1.16, For by him all things were created, speaking of Christ, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, all things were created through him and for him. That's the deepest answer to the question of why we exist. Because the Father loves the Son, and you were made through him and for him. So you see, divine love, divine love lies at the root of everything. And it's the Father's purpose to, to bring us into the never-ending joy of that love and fellowship through his Son, the Word made flesh. So again, what, what do we need to do? Well, very simply, we need to listen to the Word, right? When scientists tell us that everything can, in fact, be reduced to impersonal matter, we need to stop and listen to the Word of God. When the world is telling us that evil is good and good is evil, we need to stop and listen to the word of God. When Satan tempts us to despair and tells us of the guilt within, we need to stop and listen to the word of God. Because he has the words of eternal life. Because he is life itself. And that brings us to the next part. The Logos is the life. I promise we're going to deal with these ones more quickly. In, in verse 4, John says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Now, life is a major theme <clears throat> in John's gospel. Just to give you flavor for this, the word life appears something like 36 times in the gospel of John. In John 5, Jesus says, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. In John 10, uh, Jesus famously says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And perhaps even more famously in John 14, Jesus declares, <clears throat> I am the resurrection 
and the life. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. In other words, if we want to sum it all up, Jesus is life itself. He is the life. He is the reason that you and I are alive. Right? Question comes up, does John mean physical life or spiritual life? Is he talking here creation or salvation? And the answer is yes. It really is. It's both. It's both and. It's not either or. And so if, if you're just you know, physically alive this morning, your heart's beating, and as I look around the room, that looks like most of you, right? If you're alive this morning, you owe your life to the Word. You, you may not feel like it. You may not be interested, but you owe your life to Him. And that, again, this is true physically, also spiritually, if we have new life in Christ. Now, this is a theme we're going to explore much more as we make our way through John's gospel, because it's all over the place. But the one thing I want us to notice this morning about verse 4 is that the first time this key word appears is the way that life and light are closely connected. You see that there? Um, John doesn't simply say, in him was life. He immediately adds, and the life was the light of men. All right, so what's, what's going on here? What's the significance of this combination, this close connection of life and light? Well, once again, the Old Testament is our guide, and, and we discover that it's actually a common combination in the Old Testament. Just one example, Psalm 36, verse 9 says, With you is the fountain of life, and in your light do we see light. But to actually understand, I think, why these two themes of life and light are intimately related, we have to actually, we have to go into the Old Testament tabernacle, into the temple. And there we see golden lampstand, burned olive oil that was shaped like a blooming tree in springtime, blossoming to life. You can, you can get a good idea of what this lamp looked like if you've ever seen a Jewish menorah, which you know, consists of a central shaft with uh, you know, six branches jutting out, three on each side. This is, this is where I think the imagery of life and light comes from. Jesus is, in other words, John wants us to understand, Jesus is the true lampstand in the dwelling place of God. Jesus isn't just the symbol, but the actual source of light, and he is life for the world as the light of the world. He is the reality of life and light. So the, the, golden, the golden lampstand was clearly designed to resemble a kind of tree. And you remember the temple itself was adorned with all kinds of embroidery, imagery that harken back to the Garden of Eden, God's original dwelling place with man. Remember, at the heart of the garden, what was there? The tree of life. But at the heart of the gospel, the good news about Jesus, we find another tree 
upon which Jesus laid down his life, upon which Jesus died in order to give us life. It's no accident that Jesus was, I can't wait to get into these details later on. Jesus was crucified in John's gospel. He tells us very deliberately that Jesus was crucified, buried, and raised in a garden. Crucified, buried, and raised in a garden. John 19, 41 says, Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Jesus is the resurrection and the life who brought life and immortality to light. Even after he had been nailed to a tree, buried in, in the tomb, he, he burst forth in the bright light of that first Easter morning like a tree blossoming in springtime, full of life. And John wants you to know, so will you in time if you trust in him. This is what, this is what it means to say that Jesus is the life. He's the source, yes, of all created life, but he's also the source of eternal life. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. There's more to say about Jesus as the light. In verse 5, John says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The Bible is not only all about life. The Bible is all about light. I wonder if you've ever noticed that. In the first chapter of the Bible, let there be light. And it ends, the Bible ends, begins, declaration, let there be light. And it ends with this vision in the book of Revelation of a new creation where night will be no more because God himself will be our light. There will be no need for a sun because the glory of God will be our light. But make no mistake about it. The story in between, the story of the world, the story of our own personal lives is full of all kinds of darkness, isn't it? After God said, let there be light, it's not very long before the plot of the Bible thickens and you know, there's billowing black clouds of, of darkness. As, as a result of the sin of our first parents, the darkness of sin and death entered God's bright new world and, and we all live the consequences of that, which has cast a shadow over this world, a shadow over our lives. See, darkness in John's gospel, darkness is his way of speaking of the fallen world, of sin and Satan and the world in its opposition to God. And so the themes of light and darkness, they, they perfectly, fittingly describe the coming of Jesus into the world. That's why we, we read Isaiah 9 earlier. Matthew quotes Isaiah 9 to say, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them, light has dawned. Paul describes the times in which we live as this present darkness. You see, friends, the Bible does not brush over the darkness. 
The Bible doesn't ignore it. The Bible doesn't sugarcoat it. Jesus came into the world in the context of real darkness. But you see, the good news of John's gospel is that in the coming of Jesus, light has broken into the world. And this present darkness is not the end of the story. You know, you know what a spoiler is? You know, if you've recorded a game or there's a new movie out and you don't want anyone to tell you who won the game. You don't want anybody to tell you anything about the movie beforehand because you want to see it from start to finish for yourself. Well, John is giving us the greatest spoiler of all time here at the beginning of John 1. When he says that the light has come into the world and the darkness has not overcome it. Darkness will be dispelled by the light that he is. But we need to reckon with the fact that sometimes that's not easy to believe. Right? It's, not, it's not for me. Because there's just, there's just so much darkness. It, it seems like every week there's, there's a new tragedy somewhere in the world. More, more acts of terrorism. Another, another mass shooting. Genocidal killing going on in some part of the world. Violent protests. Christians being persecuted for their devotion to Jesus. In our own society we see... You know, we see spreading societal unrest. We see sexual immorality celebrated, widespread, deep divisions. And I think just in general, the decay of society closer to home. Some of you in the last year have had a loved one die. Or you've, you've watched them firsthand battle illness and you're, you're watching them gradually deteriorate. We, we all know people who, who are racked with chronic pain, people weighed down by depression, anxiety, people enslaved to some form of, a, of an addiction. And, and if you look at your own life, it's filled with disappointments, setbacks, dead ends, personal failures, wounds, damaged, broken relationships, the never-ending battle with our own sin, there is darkness everywhere, right? Without and within. I, I don't have to try to prove it to you. And yet, John's spoiler is true. That the darkness has not overcome the light. That in the end, the darkness doesn't win. Kelsey and I uh, just recently finished watching a, a miniseries on... Uh, on Netflix based on uh, Anthony Doerr's Pulitzer Prize winning novel, uh, the, All the Light We Cannot See. And uh, we, both, we both really enjoyed it. The story, it's about um, a young girl in living in France during World War II. She's blind. She's forced to leave Paris and ends up in a town called St. Malo. And right alongside of it, it's telling the story. I'm going to try not to give you any spoilers, okay? Um, uh, a young German orphan who's forced into uh, Nazi service um, as a radio man and tells these two stories side by side. But the great irony of the story, here she is living in this town occupied by Germans and 
They're just, it's enveloped. It's a town enveloped in darkness. All hope is lost. And the great irony of the story is that Marie, who's blind, has the best vision. She, she, is, she is the one who can perceive the light. And she's quoted, she's quoting somebody else in the story, but at one point it says, the most important light is the light you cannot see. Right? And they talk about the nature of darkness and light at a couple points in the novel and talk about how you know, it, darkness can seem so heavy, so impenetrable. But the moment light shines, the darkness disappears. I know they're, they're, they're not talking about John 1. They're not talking about Christ as the light of the world. But I think those are fitting descriptions of Jesus as the light of the world. The greatest light is the light you cannot see. But the moment he appears, the darkness will be forever banished. Darkness may seem to triumph at times in this world. But the light has come into this world. And John wants us to know the darkness has not overcome it. And even though we can't see him now with our eyes, we know that the light of the world has come into the darkness and he has overcome. Right? This, is, this is the greatest, I, I'm saying a lot of absolutes today, but they're right. This is the greatest irony in the history of the world. Right? Think about, think about all of the darkness surrounding the crucifixion of Jesus. Think about how the Gospels are telling the story. Right? Judas is in the upper room with the disciples and he goes out to betray Jesus. And how does John describe it to us? He goes out into the night. Jesus was taken in the night. Jesus is nailed to a tree where he's paying for the sins of all of his people and darkness covers the land. Jesus is placed in a dark tomb <clears throat> until Mary, Mary Magdalene on that first Easter Sunday, while it was still dark, John tells us, makes her way to the tomb and the other gospels help us understand that right as the sun was beginning to dawn, that is when they discovered the empty tomb. Don't you love that? Don't you love how the gospels tell the story, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Right? While everyone talks about light and darkness, using those you know, metaphors today, we need to understand as Christians, the light is not philosophy, the light is not morality, the light is not the lifestyle that you dream of living, the light is not you know, the newest diet or fad, the light is Jesus, Jesus, who is the life, is the light of the world because the salvation that he brings results in true, abundant, never-ending life. And you see, because of who he is for us in the gospel, we will not be overcome by the darkness in this life or in the life to come of eternal joy. But again, see, John's, John's realistic. There is darkness. We all feel that. We all know that. But in the end, the darkness doesn't win. So brothers and sisters, remember this. When you're, 
when you're facing the darkness, in whatever form, or when you're called to go through the valley of the shadow of death, as we all one day will, unless Jesus returns, the light of the world will not be bastard by the darkness. And this isn't wishful thinking. This isn't a pep talk from Pastor Jared this morning. We can be confident that the darkness will not win because of what has already taken place in history. You see, the light has already come into this present darkness, and the forces of darkness tried their best to overcome the light, but utterly failed. And when I said this is the greatest irony in the history of the world, this is, this is what I meant. This is what I was referring to. By coming under the powers of darkness, of sin and death, for a time, Jesus overcame to bring life and immortality to light through the gospel. That, brothers and sisters, ought to make us laugh. Because in the truest sense, that's what good irony does. It surprises us to such an extent that all we can do is laugh with joy. And that is precisely what the gospel of Jesus does. The light shines in the darkness even now. Can you see it? Can, can you see him through the eyes of faith? The Logos, the life, the light. He's given for you. And John's open invitation is for you to receive him. Let's pray. Father, we, we praise you for your word, your son, who is, who's from you with all eternity from all eternity with you. And we ask that each one of us would have true life through the Son who has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And we pray that you would send us forth this morning to reflect the light that he is and that others would come to know Jesus, the word, the life, and the light. And we pray this in his name. Amen.